welcome to Phil's Breakfast Metal, episode 12. Um, this this episode we're doing probably part of what might be a three-part um, show, where basically the weird side of black metal. Uh, this episode we're going to be doing a kind of more bands definitely still in the genre of black metal, but have just done, taken a bit of an odd spin on it. Mm. The next we'll get into more avant-garde stuff, and then the third one, which we haven't quite worked out what we're going to cover yet, but we want to get into the supremely stupid avant-garde, like, the the far end. Yeah, so the thing I really wanted to do with this is sort of start where Black Metal all began. So the first album we're going to cover is Bathory's Under the Sign of the Black Mark. And whilst this is one of those albums which was really instrumental in forming what went on to be at Black Metal in sort of Scandinavia and the rest of the world, it is a bit of a weird Black Metal album because it comes at that point where no one had really had any idea what they're doing. So it was released in 1987. It was the third of um, Bathory's albums at that point. So they had the um, first album just called Bathory, I think. And then there was uh, The Return of Darkness and Evil. And then there's Under the Sign of the Black Mark, which I think is a real... It's probably it's my favourite of the black metal Bathory albums. Mm-hmm. Like They really got the formula down on this one. Um, and it's got this sort of proto-black metal riffing that you'd come to know, like tremolo guitar picking, alongside weird guitar solos that you now would never see in a black metal band. And all these sort of um, atmospheric elements that start coming in. There's loads of echo, there's loads of reverb, there's weirdly distorted guitars, alongside keyboards and acoustic guitars as well, which gives it this really, really atmospheric feeling, which sort of builds the whole black metal genre, because it's all built around this idea of atmosphere. But this is such a tight example of that as well, so early on within black metal. Yeah, yeah. I mean, for some context, Bathory are one of that initial wave mm. of black metal bands. Like, you could well be forgiven for not actually knowing them. They're kind of, yeah. although legendary, much like some of the other bands we're going to cover later, they seem to just have a pocket of extremely dedicated fans, and then loads of other people who have no idea. Uh, so they formed 1983. Shortly after Venom, although apparently not influenced by, according to Quorfon himself. Yeah. Um, at this point, like the, the point of uh, undersigned the Black Mark, um, it's 1987, isn't it? Like four years later, Quorfon's got a drummer and a bass player in the band. Are those the same guys he had all the way through? So, so it's slightly different. They have a different drummer on this band because uh, the 18 year old Paul Lundberg joined them for this who um, was terrified he was not going to be able to play fast enough because he wasn't really into this sort of music. Mm. And Cawthon sent him these guitar tracks and he just thought, there's no way I can play as fast. And when you listen to this album and the first track, Massacre, comes on, like <laughs> particularly for bands at the time when the sort of heaviest, most evil stuff you had was Venom and Sodom and bands like that. Like This is sort of a order of magnitude more evil, faster, more aggressive, more demented and more atmospheric than anything like that. And then they also, uh, and yeah, they had that drummer because their drummer who was with Bathory was working a full-time job at the time. And this is the drummer who went on to direct loads of music videos with <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, Candlemas and even Lady Gaga and stuff. But he couldn't record it because they had to record it on weekdays and he had a full-time job. And then they had um, uh, Christopher Sandstrom, who was a 19-year-old bass player who joined them as well for this album in particular. I can't remember why the last bass player is not on this one, but they had a new bass player join them. So it's amazing this album is made by three teenagers. Yeah, um, yeah. On like such a small budget as well. They had an eight-track recorder. They had to make their own soundboard for recording. And it's, it's ridiculous that it manages to sound like really tight. 
as it does. Like, it's definitely got that old school production and it does sound like it was recorded in the garage because it was. But <laughs> it doesn't sound terrible. And there are a lot of bands with a lot more money who have made albums that do not sound as good as this. Yeah, this, uh, like this album as well, it sort of came out of the point where the first wave was just clashing into the very beginnings of the second mm-hmm. wave. So it came out slightly after Mayhem's pure fucking Armageddon demo, yeah. which, like... Sounds even rawer than this. Um, and also, after A Blaze in the Northern Sky, the kind of probably the template mm, for the second mm. wave. So, I didn't realize quite how Baffrey's influence like collided with the yeah, very yeah. start of. Um, uh, yeah, I always thought they were slightly before, but actually, they collide right into the very beginning. And this album in particular, because it, I think it's such a perfection of that early Bathory black metal formula, and no one really does it like them, it went on to inspire an awful lot of bands and shape mm. the scene. Bands like Watain and Marduk took a huge amount of inspiration from this album, and uh, Fenris from Dark Throne said this was a huge inspiration from where Dark Throne went in the future after this. Oh, yeah, you can certainly see it, although there's a lot of differences. Say, say you know, uh, Blazing Northern Sky is very atmospheric kind of longer songs mm-hmm. um this is far more in the Marduk Wattain vein of yeah. it's pretty brutal punishing music but with some of the black metal staples of ludicrously high vocals um really heavily distorted but still quite high tuned guitars yeah, yeah. fuck all bass like. <laughs> <laughs> but as you're on talking of the vocals like this uh, is where Warren Crawford's best vocal performances ever like he sounds mm. demented throughout the entire album like from the first one like, scream he does on the beginning of Massacre right through to the end his vocal performance is incredible Sometimes his clean vocals on later albums will sort of fall down, but his harsh vocals firstly sound like no one else because no one knew what the fuck they were doing at this point. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he was just trying to make a horrible sound and he, and he did it, but it fits the atmosphere and the tone and this sort of really overt satanic feel that early black metal had so perfectly. Yeah, and uh, like on top of like the kind of brutality, there is still a lot of like groove and catchy mm. riffs they're still borrowing from the old new wave of British heavy metal yeah, yeah. like tracks like uh, Woman of Dark Desire definitely have like a really catchy memorable kind of yeah. you know almost Iron Maiden style like <laughs> chorus <laughs> but of, just delivered through yeah, the lens sort of, of black re- metal really evil Iron Maiden but uh, there's some weird influences in here there's quite a few classical um, influences within this so Call from the Grave was originally uh, based on a, um, Chopin's Funeral March and Corvon mm. did a weird variation of this himself and then decided, oh no, this could be a full-on song. And so made this into a song about being buried alive and being killed. Um, and apparently most of the press understood this as just a song, like a metal song about someone being buried alive, which is a very metal topic. But the UK press apparently thought that this was Corvon converting to Christianity. I have no idea how they reached that conclusion, but apparently they thought that because he talked about it in interviews. But um, it's a really interesting song because of that. And also you have um, a guitar solo in it and some great guitar solos on this album. But this one uh, had three harmonizing guitar tracks at the same time, which was a really cool feel. It just made the solo feel bigger and more atmospheric and really added to the feel of the album. And Corvon writes sort of black metal guitar solos like no one else. No one really does his style of guitar mm. playing, particularly in black metal, which often tends to strip back on guitar solos. He keeps them all in there sort of from the new wave of British heavy metal influence, and it makes a really unique sound. Yeah, and he, like, Corfon, bizarrely for a guitarist in this kind of burgeoning genre, like a young guy as well, really talented virtuoso mm, guitarist. Mm. Like, if you look at, like, a lot of the Swedish scene, because them and Candlemas pretty much 
are the reason the Swedish scene existed. Because kids realised you could actually break out of the country with extreme music. Um, But yeah, he had this incredible guitaring ability. He was writing these, like, I wouldn't, maybe not melodic, but certainly memorable and very, like, he had his own, as Rob was saying, like, completely has his own sound. Mm. Like, yeah, really impressive guitar solos. Which, yeah, so alien in this genre. Yeah, it's a really cool episode as well. Like, this album marks a little bit of a, of a departure from pure Satanism, which we had on the earlier two albums and a lot of early black metal. Most songs in this are still Satanic and Demon-based, which, again, is really cool and works beautifully with this sound. But you have a couple of songs like um, Equimathorn, which is not actually about that at all. It's a step into mythology, which Bathory would then take further and further and further when they went to each of their albums. So, um... Equimathorn is uh, is a made up word and combines equal man and god. Uh, and the, the beginning of it, which you can hear if you listen to it, is actually based on the Jaws theme tune. Um, <laughs> and it's it's about a sort of primitive god of primitive man who was sort of equal to man but still a god. Um, but it just marks the turn where they shift from just being about Satanism to taking in loads of other um, topics as well, which again, I think a theme of these episodes, black metal started off as this small satanic thing and then took these unimagined directions in loads and loads of different ways and took loads of subject matter and different musical styles and built it around the same core thing. But I think that's a real strength of this album, particularly right at the beginning, to have that weird influence in it. Oh yeah, yeah, certainly. Um, Like Beyond that, I think... I think that all the songs are kind of relatively in a style, wouldn't you say? Like they, yeah. they do kind of follow that um, sort of short, flashy, normally kind of like verse-chorus structure. Yeah, yeah. They, they, this hasn't got into the realms of what you'll see, like Emperor and other bands doing later, where you like song structures go completely yeah, bizarre yeah, and yeah. and. But it, like, and maybe it is just following the almost like the possessed kind of model of just mm. taking existing influences and then just warping them to be extremely <laughs> brutal. Yeah, yeah. As, as the other interesting thing about this album is it has a fantastic cover. Mm. Uh, so it's got this sort of uh, big rocky centerpiece thing with um, what appears to be the devil or some form of devil standing there holding something, these big sort of goat horns and stuff like that. And um, I mean, I didn't realize, I was convinced this was a painting of some kind. It really looks like a painting. Uh, but what it is, is it's a picture taken in the Swedish um, National Opera House uh, of a Swedish bodybuilder who was just sort of hired to come in um, and stand there with a goat's leg and a big goat mask on, which actually had real goat flesh on it as well. So it oh, adds to the credence. Metal as fuck. But it, 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 was mayhem meant, to it. <laughs> it was meant to be a recreation of a Goya painting called um, Witch's Sabbath where they have this um, goat demon, Satan, surrounded by a bunch of uh, naked women. So there were some naked women who were meant to be on this album cover, but they didn't fit. Uh, as soon as they got in and say, okay, we've got five minutes to do this shot, they realised they were not going to fit on the stage with him. So it ended up just being a photo of this Swedish bodybuilder who is it's, now Bathory's devil. It's not the painting that ended up being, a, like, well, that Reverend Bazaar ended up using on their first yes, album yes, cover. It, it is that painting, yeah, yeah. <laughs> cool. I hadn't thought of that, but that is right. So, um, yeah, it's got quite a cool cover story as well. Um, but, yeah, just a really, really iconic cover. Like, this thing just sort of screams black metal at you as soon as you see it. Yeah, the the interesting thing, like, so we covered Bathory, like, months and months ago on the first episode. Mm. And at that point, I hadn't really listened to them. I've now gone back and got into them, into like sort of gone right back to their early stuff after Rob got me into Nordland. And it's really, like, 
interesting where this sits in their their catalogue. They're definitely a band that's worth going back to, especially like their mm. early era. So you've got the first album, which is like quite Venom style, very to the point, heavy sort of proto black metal. Yeah, the sort of thrashy and new wave British heavy metal elements sort of thrown in together. Yeah, the second album is probably more on the way to this, would you say? It's it's definitely a sort of fusion of the two. Um, it's got the same sort of... It's got more song structures, more like what you see on this, with a few more of these atmospheric elements. Uh, but I think the second album in particular has some great songs on it. Born for Burning is a fantastic track, mm. really catchy riff. But it does fall down a little bit just based on the production and overall strength of all the songs, particularly if you compare it to this album. And um, Corvin used to say that he um, one of the things with this album is he just wanted everything to be a bit clearer so you could tell what was going on. Mm-hmm. And you can really tell that with this album. It's much clearer and easier to understand, despite being still quite an obscure, weird little proto-black metal and, album. And this is, like when we say it's more kind of listenable, like production-wise, <laughs> this has still got a really brutal raw. <laughs> like this, this sounds like almost demo production. It just kind of yeah, works yeah. here. The previous album is just too necro for me to listen to. Yeah. I can't. Yeah, it's just some of the really early sort of Sodom stuff as well, where it's, mm. it's just not done well enough to really be listenable. Sodom, a band who were apparently signed because they sounded so awful, yeah. the guy just wanted to find out what they were producing in the studio, <laughs> and then became a really great band. After yeah, that, so. yeah, 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 definitely worth it. And then, like, following this is like I'd say this album and the follow-up mm. are basically essential albums if you're into any of the kind of if you've got any interest in black metal in general they, they're both albums that just sit in your collection so, uh, blood fire death blood, blood fire death I'm the next one wrong yeah. uh, um this is where he takes a massive direction shift mm-hmm. like we haven't quite got to the point where he starts introducing clean vocals but i'll be later on hammerheart but otherwise the music's like massively taken on like a folk inspiration yeah yeah I've, I've always thought of Bloodfire Death as like that meeting point between this black metal part of Bathory and then this sort of folk metal part of Bathory and it's a it's a great sort of uh, meeting point because Corvon's vocals still work amazingly on mm-hmm. it, whereas they start they fumble a little bit when he's trying out new things uh, but it still has some of these amazing guitarists awesome solos um, and still like again Bloodfire Death was still an incredibly inspirational album I think you saw Emperor playing yeah, you know, Find Death itself, or is it well, Find Day to Die? Find Day to Die, which is on the, I think, like bonus tracks on the first Emperor album, there is a, a cover, like a really faithful recreation of a Find Day to Die. And Emperor, when they were doing touring the uh, first album, um, like would play the entirety of the first album. This mm. was like their reunion tour about four years back. Play entirety of the first album, then end on a fine day to yeah. die, and and it sounded quite different to the rest of the album stuff. But like, it was just such a monumental mm-hmm. piece to end it on because it's these kind of like yeah, combining two like mammoths of that that era, yeah, like yeah. two extremely influential songs. Mm. Influential and, songs, yeah. <laughs> and, and taking like these two albums, um, particularly this one, as we're talking about it, that just goes to show just how influential these were, mm. and how much of the scene they created. Um, and one of the weird things about that, because this was the beginning of that black metal scene before it really took hold of um, everything, is Bathory at the time used to call themselves death metal because it was before anyone really worked out what all of this stuff was. And black metal was heavily linked to Venom, and Bathory at this point weren't really like Venom anymore. Uh, and so they called themselves death metal, and yet now it's black metal. But I like the idea of looking back and seeing this when it was just 
a brand new album and no one had ever heard anything like this. Like, what listening to this must have been like. It would just be insane. Oh yeah, definitely. Uh, so yeah, the track we're going to play from this album is one of the ones we mentioned earlier. Just a really catchy track. This is Woman of Dark Desire.
second album we're covering today is by a band probably more recognised than Bathory or like mm. have more of an inbuilt fan base now. Honestly, because they probably, well, in my opinion, and many would debate this, have the most untarnished like record as a band I can think of. Like, pretty much their entire discography is great. Uh, this is the uh, Norwegian black metal band Emperor. Um, yeah, I don't know, like, I'm pretty much more a fan of Emperor than, mm-hmm. like, Rob's kind of come to them the opposite direction through Ishan's solo Ishan's career. Story, and, yeah. Whereas, yeah, I got into them just before Ishan kicked off his solo mm-hmm. career mm-hmm. when he was still um, in his band with his wife, uh, Peckerton. Uh, yeah, so the album we're covering there is, like, it's probably worth going through theirs in order just to mm-hmm. sort of mention the sort of legacy. Um, they formed in 1991, so fair bit after Bathory and, you know, relatively into that wave of black metal getting going. Like, Dark Friend had already started their thing. Like, Mayhem were coming up to their... Probably had already recorded it, but it wasn't going to be released for a few years yet. Yeah, yeah. uh, Don Mystery. And, yeah, they did a load of, like, kind of legendary demos, which eventually culminated in the album we mentioned a few minutes ago, um, In the Nightside Eclipse, yeah. coming out. And it's just, like, to this day, seen as one of the most legendary like perfect yeah yeah definitely that sort of older style of black metal they just took all those influences and put it into this one incredibly tight um, and well done package yeah followed that up a few years later with Anthems to the Welkin which is kind of a like similar idea just got a little more progressive each one's turned all the keyboards up in the mix yeah. so it got a bit more symphonic some clean vocals come in then the album we're covering today is Nine Equilibrium their third album this is where, like, the, this is the really divisive album in Emperor's catalogue. Like, if there's one fans are going to hate, or even just forget, it's this one, because it's the weirdest point of the band. It's the point where you can see why the band ended soon after, mm. because it's very much two sides fighting their influences. At this point, the, the line-up is um, Ishan, uh, at this stage, doing vocals, guitars, uh, keyboards and bass and most of the songwriting yeah. and then you have Sam off like a long-standing rhythm guitarist who's pretty much in Emperor the whole time and then drummer from the previous album uh, Trim Torson who yeah replaced Faust for obvious reasons we won't go into um, at this time I think Sam off and Trim had formed Cyclone so mm. we're getting really into their kind of like like brutal kind of death metal like not slam death, more kind of like brutal technical metal. Whereas Ishan was starting to lean, clearly had leanings towards what would eventually be the material we'd hear in his solo career. Um, and then actually the next album where he completely takes over the songwriting yeah, wholly, yeah. actually near enough sounds like his solo career. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. Just with more pinch harmonics from him. <laughs> so yeah, you you were new to this album though. Um, when, yeah. Yeah, I, so <laughs> I got Emperor very late, but this album, uh, I really love it. It's a really interesting album because, as you say, it's got these two directions sort of going on within it. And there's so much to appreciate and find in this album. It takes a long time to fully get everything about it. I don't think I ever will fully understand everything. <laughs> but um, the thing that really stood out to me about it is that at this point, um, the em- within Emperor, they are fantastic musicians uh, as well as songwriters. <laughs> and their technical proficiency is just great as well as their ability to throw so many different styles of metal together and somehow make it cohesive. So they have this weird thing where it's a very technical album with a lot of very fast, very difficult guitar passages and weird rhythms and riffs coming together. 
and yet it manages to retain the atmosphere of a black metal album like In the Nightside Eclipse or Under the Sign of the Black Mark or something like that. It still has that sort of sense of evil there and it loses mm-hmm. it sometimes when it goes in different directions but it still has it. It still to me feels like a black metal album just one that's gone off and done something a bit weird. Yeah, yeah, I can definitely see and I think that might be a certain degree of the technical death metal coming in there Yeah, because yeah. like the drum performance in this is insane. It's kind of the, the mix on this is similar-ish to the mix on the previous two albums. So you still have this thing of, like, very high keyboards, very high vocals. Um, The guitars are this complete kind of, like, blur that you can kind of pick bits out of, but they're going so fast and being underneath the keyboards without much of a bass presence. And then you've just got these lightning-fast drums throughout, which... Yeah, make it all very hard to distinguish what's happening. I managed to keep up with all these changes that are going on when it sort of unexpectedly moves from one riff to something completely different and the drums have to keep pace with this entire thing, which is like definitely an incredible performance there. The the interesting thing that Trim's talked about in uh, interviews that he did there, which I've not seen so much or maybe exists loads and I've just not noticed, mm. is he covered his kit in like loads of little splash cymbals because he found oh, it was yeah. the only way to accentuate the blast beats because if he yeah, used yeah. like a kind of cymbal that would ring out way longer, it would just be more chaos. <laughs> whereas using the little splash cymbals, he gets a very quick sound of like, yeah, you know, yeah, something's changing. It cuts off very quickly. And this album, as we were saying with Bathory actually, um, some black metal doesn't go in for this side of it but it has a definite groove in a lot of places mm. and it has what almost death metal or thrash riffs in part of it like real things that you can properly headbang to and like you really feel the groove of what's going on despite it like shifting and changing a lot it manages to have moments where you can really just headbang to this and just sounds like a death metal band and then it goes back into this weird sort of um, avant-garde black metal thing mm-hmm yeah, because you've got a lot of like uh, competing influences where, like sometimes Eshon really leans towards the super me- melodic, like um, the tr- track three, uh, Eulogy to Icarus or Elegy to Icarus, as uh, <laughs> Eshon pronounces it through the entire song, um, has a lot of super melodic elements. It's got this album has more clean vocals than any before. Like mm-hmm. the previous album had an odd line or two, and then like one track where it's really prominent. This, almost every song has elements of this. And this has, like, your super clean choruses. And the keyboards are getting more and more symphonic. Like, really getting to the point where Ishan's, like, like, wanting to, like, mimic an orchestra to some extent. I really, especially, like, decrystallizing reason. That ending's very... Yeah, yeah, the sound is so huge because there are so many sort of voices to pay attention to. You've got both of the guitars going on. Unfortunately, as you said, like the bass is pretty hard to pick out. Mm. You then have Ishan's vocals, which is and his performance is incredible. It ranges from these like for Ishan, what's really quite guttural, up to his classic high pitched screams, and all the way in between. And then these clean vocals, and then these King Diamond vocals as well which is incredible. But then you've got the synth as well. So there are so many different um, sort of melodies going on and so many things to pay attention to. And it does really have the feel of an orchestra done by a metal band. Yeah, yeah. And then obviously the usual fight there of like, how do you make an orchestra sound right over a blast yeah, beat, yeah. which you know, bands like Flesh God Apocalypse or Demi Borg mm-hmm. have been trying to work out for years. Um, like uh, The other side of this is like, uh, Rob mentioned like, King Diamond vocals. We, you can see where this is built on the influence of other bands. Mm. So, like, that first wave of black metal clearly had a big effect on Ishan, because, like, saying earlier, covered that Bathory song, and that was, like, a, a serious moment in the Emperor, like, catalogue. Also, King Diamond vocals are everywhere in, in Ishan's <laughs> stuff. They're, 
like uh, actually next flat cover is a cover of um merciful fate to gypsy yeah, or yeah gypsy, for sorry. merciful fate yeah so yeah and, and and he's so good at that he can do an amazing impression but it adds just this different sonic element which you do not expect to find in sort of what became second wave and even later forms of black metal because this is right back from stuff which has more in common with new wave and british heavy metal than black metal and yet it works with this really orchestral stuff that he's going for and it just adds this extra thing to pay attention to and this album already has so many of those but then it sort of throws you a curveball with these different style of vocals which yeah, is great yeah. to see that much variety on black metal which you know sometimes can become a little bit monotonous and sometimes that's good like sometimes that's what bands are going for but to see emperor just take it and run with it and go in every direction at once is great yeah well like uh the the track source of icon e that features the most of this mm. i like i would say almost sounds like a sped up thrash song yeah. if you layered like loads of symphonic keyboards over it yeah and throwing some king diamond vocals yeah. for, <laughs> for good measure yeah. whereas you've got like uh, as i mentioned earlier uh eulogy to icarus it sounds like kind of angel era ishon mm. and then like towards the middle of the album there's a track uh nonus equilibrium which to me sounds like basically every single influence on the album <laughs> thrown together and it almost sounded like the chaos is just going to collapse at one point but they just about like just about managed to keep it together to come out to a really cool melody at yeah, the that's end. the thing they, they just managed to hold on to this and with melodies as well there's some awesome guitar solos in this mm. Ishan's like lead guitar is phenomenal and I think a lot of them sound very Bathory inspired Ishan is often more melodic than Quorthon is with a lot of his writing but on this you'll have super fast guitar solos and then really nice melodic sort of guitar leads and stuff which really helps round the album out and so it doesn't lose itself in this chaos of all these different influences. Yeah, because like he has to do something to stand up from Samoff's like trademark supremely fast pick guitar, like the, <laughs> this kind of like trem like infinite tremolo riffs, and <laughs> like him and Trim just seem to be able to keep up a pace that is just yeah, yeah. very hard to wrap your head around. Talking of um, like the solos, I think the the really notable one is towards the end of the track uh, "Warriors of Modern Death," yeah, yeah. which is a really alien track for Emperor because it's just like, it doesn't sound like an Emperor song. It sounds like total, like, early Bathory worship. Yeah, yeah. And it, like and because of the production as well, it has this real sort of death metal feel to it as well, mm. which I'm like, early Bathory said that they were. But it's got that sort of weird early black metal and then this, like, tight production and these, like, really amazing heavy chugging guitars and this punishing drums. It's a really, it's an oddball on the album, but I really like mm. it. It's a really sort of punishing, driving track. Yeah, and starts with the exact same sample. This would drive anyone mad who's not heard it before. It's the exact same bell sample as you use at the start of For Whom the Bell, bell tells. tells. Yeah, I thought that was it. <laughs> so every time you listen to it, you, you kind of hear the bell chime three times. You're like, right, the bass is going to come in. And it doesn't. <laughs> it chime another two times, and then a black metal guitar riff comes in. It's very confusing. Yeah. <laughs> Much like I was upset by uh, the Eulogy to Icarus when I noticed it's got exactly the same lead melody at one point as uh, Fatal Tragedy by Dream Theater. <laughs> and the riff underneath is almost at the same yeah. pace. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> See if you can spot that. <laughs> Well, there's a lot of sort of black metal bands, particularly earlier, where it's like they're basically stealing riffs from each other and stuff like that. But Dream Theater to Emperor, that's a quite a cool link. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. think Evil is influencing each yeah, other. Yeah. Um, like, kind of like package-wise, like this album is continued in the same vein. If you've seen the four Emperor covers, they all look very similar, very similar kind of... Um, I think they're all old... Uh, 
old paintings that have been mm. kind of actually maybe they're not all I know is the art was put together like random fact for this one it was put together by Stephen O'Malley of Sun like <laughs> I don't know how he's involved again which is such a weird link between very very different bands and yeah. people it's so, so the album cover is like what looks like a very old kind of like painting of like demons and that with the faces of the band members mm. kind of layered in the background and looks better than that makes it sound yeah yeah yeah, yeah. yeah it has a real sort of aesthetic to it this sort of really uh, slightly muddy, metally, bronzy, brown colour. Um, although on the back of the album, they do then put the font of the songs and the names in exactly the same colour, so it's almost impossible to read. But it's a really nice cover. Yeah, yeah, like Emperor have always done well for like, sort of capturing the imagination, and they, they certainly built their own style. It was like, you look at all the kind of black metal bands that were starting to do well at that time, everyone had got their own direction. Yeah, like, yeah. you had uh, Immortal going down the route of Posing in silly, <laughs> posing in forests with axes and things like that. Yeah, and then Dark Throne sort of doing the same, but not mm. quite as silly, or possibly more silly, depending on how you look at it. And yeah, the Mayhem's own kind of like very weird um, artistic direction as well. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I don't know if there's anything else worth. Oh yeah, actually, I have thought of something else worth mentioning about this album. The final track. Um, well, so you've got this kind of like eight track main album and then if you buy the kind of uh, bonus editions you get a nice live version of the opener, Curse You All Men, mm -hmm. which is definitely the kind of classic of this album. I think the only one that really made it back into Emperor Sets after they reformed. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's definitely, it's the one I've heard before, before checking out this album. It's just one of the sort of staple Emperor songs that you learn to know. It's a bit of a shame really that a lot of the other stuff didn't make it back in because there's a treasure trove of great songs here. Oh, yeah, yeah. I think, though, a lot of that was... Fans were mainly calling for people to play the first album. Yeah. yeah. And the final album, Prometheus, was never played live. They split up yeah, before the tour. Yeah. So there was kind of that thing of, like, they had to get some Prometheus tracks <laughs> in there as well, just because they'd yeah, never seen the light of day. Um, but, yes, on top of that uh, live version, there is also a, a remix uh, done by Garm of uh, Oliver and many other bands of the track Sworn. Mm. And he, he's... Basically, like, remove the drum track, but then put this really pounding electronic beat underneath it, and then just sampled bits of the song in <laughs> without the drum track. It's very strange, but I think I enjoy it. Yeah, I, I don't know what my opinion is it yet, particularly when you're comparing it to the other version of Swarm, which is, like, such a lot to get your head around in the first place, just because this is such an interesting album and so many angles to it, and then just has this really odd remix at the end. <laughs> yeah, but, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I fully support doing really weird stuff with um, black metal and particularly albums like this. Yeah, and then as a bonus track, it's not really wasting mm. your time. You, you can just skip it if it sounds confusing and strange. <laughs> but yeah, we could have played, like, Curse Your Men from this, but... Odds are that's the one you've heard, and it's kind of like it's a great song. It probably is one of the best in this album. But um, talking about it, we thought we'd go for Sworn just because it's a really to the point, mm. heavy song, and it, it just gives a good impression of what Emperor are up to on this album. <laughs>
The next album we're looking at is still definitely a black metal album, but going in a very different direction and pulling in different influences, sort of like Emperor, but becomes a little bit more removed. Uh, this is one of my favorite albums of all time, and this is Agalock's Ashes Against the Grain. Now, Agalock are a weird band. Um, they're from Portland in the United States, and this album comes out in about 2006. Mm. It's the third of their albums after Pale Folklore and The Mantle, which were these weird combinations of black metal with these sort of neo-folk influences, particularly on The Mantle, the album preceding this, you have an awful lot of acoustic guitar packages, um, sort of passages interspersed with songs like I Am The Wooden Doors, which were just pretty much black metal songs, just with a very different touch. And Ashes Against the Grain comes along, where they lose um, a fair amount of these acoustic guitar passages and a lot of this neo-folk influence, but still have a lot of um, weird post-rock elements alongside <laughs> the black metal and the remainder of this uh, sort of folk-based stuff. Um, and so Agalock are a strange band for bringing all these influences together because they still have these very quite harsh black metal vocals over the top of you know much more beautiful um, music with these lovely acoustic guitars and these very post-rock feeling intros and stuff like that, which then still pulls it back into black metal. Um, so there are four of them in at this point. They've John um, Horm, who is on vocals and guitar, Don Anderson, who plays guitar, does some backing vocals. Uh, Jason, who plays bass. And I didn't write down the name of the Chris drummer. Green. Chris Green. No. Yes, because it's your boss's name. Yeah, the same um, name as my boss. For, for, <laughs> for this album. So previously, um, John, who's, uh, John and Don are the main songwriters. Previously, John had played drums on the albums. And on this, they got in their own drummer. Uh, he didn't stay on, actually, because they were having problems with him as a live drummer. But this marks a bit of um, a change. The drums are a little bit more sophisticated on this album. Yeah. They become better throughout Agalock's career because they then get um, Asop Decker in, who is a fantastic drummer and really bumps up particularly their live performances. Mm -hmm. uh, but this album for me is a step of maturity for Agalock. They really get together what they've been doing. Pale Folklore was a really great sort of um, show of mixing these influences together. The Mantle then took loads of different directions and played around with lots of different ideas. And I love both of those albums. But this album really streamlined it into a package of making these influences work together and doing it for one consistent artistic message, which is all about um, depression and nihilism and how the world is fucked, basically. Yeah, it, it's, a really, it's an interesting album because I was given this like... Years and years ago, a friend burnt me a copy of like three or four albums, and so I was giving it with no context. I didn't even see the album covers. I was just listening to like, a burnt disc of it, and the the first track, Limbs, gives no impression of where it's going to go either. Because realistically, the first four minutes of Limbs is instrumental post rock. It, yeah, it yeah. like genuinely could be a Red Sparrow song. It's completely. It doesn't bring in the black metal until the scream vocals and the kind of even heavier, faster drumming start coming in. Yeah, it's quite quite a strange experience, this album. It's mm. like, the other ways it kind of really departs from more traditional black metal is super clean production, like yeah, really yeah. clean guitars. You don't have that kind of emperor, fuzzed out, like yeah, super there's, tremolo picks. There's none of this super distortion that you'd find in old bands like Bathory. But they do definitely have this incredibly atmospheric thing about their album. And this album takes a really interesting journey. It starts off in this sort of uh, post-rock thing. And they have a lot of stuff reflecting on nature and how mankind interacts with nature. And this album really reminds me of, you know, visiting uh, incredibly beautiful natural places mm -hmm. like Yellowstone or somewhere like that. These amazing sort of vistas that they generate through the music itself. 
But then as it goes on, it gets sort of darker and darker towards the end, and you have this huge three-piece, Our Fortress is Burning, which is the end of the album, and is, like, really sad. Um, and it's, it's, ded- it's actually dedicated to um, a friend of Don Anderson's um, who unfortunately committed suicide, and it's sort of this... It's all, but it also has this thing which goes back to the album title with Ashes Against the Grain. It's the idea that um, you can try to stop something um, and try to do something good, particularly in terms of how man is interacting with nature and the meaningless of life, the lack of gods and stuff like that, and the nihilistic reality of everything. And you can try to do something about this and try to make it more meaningful, but in the end you're just ashes against the grain and you can't even cut against the grain, let alone ashes so it has this sort of end where it just fades out into noise after Bloodbirds, which is, you know, an, a beautiful song, but really quite a sad song. Mm-hmm. And the sort of idea they had for it is, um, it was all, the, also the other idea of Ashes Against the Grain is the uh, sort of image of a bird crashing in a forest, which is um, the bird is on fire and burning, and then it just sort of slowly burns in, on the ground. And that's what the cover image is m- sort of meant to be. Now, Don Anderson has said he's not entirely happy with how it works and doesn't necessarily get across the message, but it's the idea of something sort of beautiful and great burning and being destroyed and becoming nothing. I think I've seen an updated version of this cover where they've replaced it with, like, a band logo or an actual piece of art rather than this kind of, um, like, weird, like, doctored photo I think they've used there. Yeah, yeah. Which, yeah, might be uh, uh, John or Don's request. Mm. So, so the, the other idea of the Ashes Against the Grain is that Agalok have always done things in a bit of a weird way and no one has ever mixed the... Well, people have mixed the influences they have, but not quite in the way that they've done it. And there aren't really any bands that sound like Agalok ever. They have split up now, but no one's really come close to producing what they do. And the idea is that Agalok themselves are Ashes Against the Grain because they're going against the grain, but this won't necessarily mean anything. It doesn't mean that anyone else will do the same thing or that the grain is any better, you know, the mainstream stuff. And it it can get a bit sort of um, very metaphorical and stuff like that, but it is backed up by incredibly well-written songs. Very long songs for the most part. Yeah, yeah, maybe around 10 minutes. Yeah, and there's like a couple of shorter ones, but... Generally, very long, epic songs, which, as you say, has like a four-minute post-rock build-up. They take ages to build up, but I feel pretty much all the songs on this deserve that runtime. With a couple of exceptions of um, songs where almost nothing happens. It's sort of this ambient noise, which I do like in certain cases. Um, On This White Mountain You Will Die is a fairly good example, because it's only about a minute and a half. Yeah, yeah. So it sort of breaks up the movements of the album, but towards the end, the final part of... um, a fortress is burning and grain just there's a lot of noise which I feel doesn't necessarily take you anywhere. Yeah, that, that final track is seven minutes of like um kind of slightly changing a staticky fade out. Mm-hmm. Uh, interestingly, uh, the, the two tracks Rob's mentioned there were both written by Chris Green. They're not mm-hmm. like uh, the whereas the rest of the album was a combination of um the other three musicians who are, I think have all been in the band since the very start, or at least as near as the first yeah, album. Yeah. Yeah, um, so there's a weird way that Agalok write as well, because they're um, situated in America and are a good you know, four hours drive apart from each other. Uh, they don't tend to meet up until recording. Mm. So what will happen is um, John and Agalok is his sort of um, project, um, or at least he started it. We'll write a bunch of guitar passages and we'll send them off to um, Don and Jason. And then they will take these and basically write their own albums based on all these guitar stuff they've been sent. And John will write his version as well. They'll then come to the studio um, and they'll have basically three versions of this album and they'll put them all together and see what happens. 
Uh, and this can uh, uh, this the, the recording of this album was described as hell by a lot of the band members really? because of how difficult that was. Um, in interviews, Don has talked about how it's often difficult for John when they have to transpose things and completely change them because he's um, a trained musician. Don Anderson has done loads of stuff. That sort of stuff's very natural to him. But for John, and I can sort of empathize with this myself, like I'm not super hot on my music theory, so having to do something like that would really stress me out. I can yeah, see yeah. why that's really tricky. But, you know, um, before the album, they had like four versions of Not Unlike the Waves, which were dramatically different to the song we end up with. So it's just a really interesting creative process they have, which somehow comes out with a product which, to me, feels incredibly cohesive. And it takes you on this journey, just which starts off with this post-rock kind of melancholic feel, all the way to this sort of crushing, really sad, like really heavy end, which really completes out the album. Yeah, yeah, I mean, like, making an album this cohesive, although the last seven minutes is fairly disposable, mm. it's an hour-long album, effectively built around five songs. Like, yeah. we've got five kind of ten-minute epics. Um, like, you have Limbs, which has got more of a post-rock feel. Um, Falling Snow, the next track, kind of gets a bit heavier and does something that, like, a real Aglark staple, mm. I think, from now on, of doing these lead guitar parts. Uh, two or three notes, but really melodic, really hook you, and, like... And get across like their kind of feeling, like the the constant theme throughout this year, as Rob was saying, it's really melancholic, and these these slow, like beautiful guitar passages mm-hmm. over kind of slightly heavier riffing, like that that continues, like uh, Fire Above, Ice Below again has a lot more of that. Not unlike the waves is the first part where we get like any kind of showy lead guitar. There's two yeah. kind of properly shreddy solos mm-hmm. in there. Like the, the guitar leads and melodies in Agalock alongside the solos are really some of the highlights. They have an amazing ability to write, as you're saying, incredibly simple but incredibly catchy and incredibly heartfelt lead guitar alongside actually having the sort of, um, sort of talent to really do these incredible guitar solos when they need to. And the amount of energy that goes into these songs, they sort of sat they sort of describing them as melancholic. There's a huge amount of energy and drive and power and passion in all of these songs. And having been lucky enough to see them live a couple of times, the sort of energy they put into live performances is incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it really, like, you know, they really do care about all this stuff and all these themes of, you know, caring about nature alongside all these sort of darker themes as well it comes across in sort of a way that almost makes you feel sort of slightly happy and slightly sad at the same time and there's a real sort of transcendental sort of beauty to it that it can sort of do both of those things Mm. oh yeah definitely definitely the other thing we haven't mentioned is like on top of the kind of the screen delivery of the vocals um john also does these kind of and i think these are on every single track like these really kind of um melancholic but very like, almost spoken clean vocals yeah like, not far off like he just has a really unique and interesting delivery to both his screams which um really noticeable and not unlike the waves like he mm. does these mm. ludicrous high screams kind of slightly reminiscent of niche from Alcest yeah yeah and there's um there's a thing about the vocals as well something that uh, John is really good at is sort of changing his intonation mm. uh, so there are plenty there are a lot of black metal vocalists in particular and death metal and other genres where you have a noise and you stick to that noise and you make that noise uh, Flesh Hill Apocalypse are a great example of that where it works beautifully for them like for yeah, their style yeah. exactly what they need but in this case uh, John and he does this more and more on um, albums as it goes along he varies his intonation a lot sometimes he has this sort of like slightly distorted whisper sometimes it's the clean vocals and then his harsh screams can vary quite a lot to really full on to a middle ground between these sort of really harsh whispers and screams 
So he does that really nicely and it emphasizes points of the song really well. And they also have great restraint with vocals. So if you look at Our Fortress is Burning, it goes on for a very long time before there are any vocals. It's, yeah, in, it's yeah. in the second part when the vocals finally come in and the lyrics are, I think there's something like um, God of Man is a failure or something like that. Really sort of dramatic stuff. But it takes them so long to come in. By the time they come in, you're absorbed in sort of the feel of the song and the atmosphere. And then these vocals come in and they do that so well to drive the points of songs home. And it's so artistically done and well-placed, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah, really true. Like, these are really well-crafted songs. I think this is like one of the reasons like Agalock have a legacy like they do. Mm. So they broke up uh, late last year, as we mentioned on the End of the Year podcast. Formed in 1995, have only done five albums. A lot of interesting experimental EPs in the, in the meantime. EPs, yeah. Like, um, like Faustian Echoes is just one 25-minute long, yeah. really heavy song. And then they've got things like uh, the YTP, which is just a folk album. Yeah, um, which me and Rob have very differing opinions <laughs> on. But like Rob, big fan of it. I didn't get it, but maybe I need to re-listen yeah. to it. <laughs> well, it's a very specific part of Agalog's sound. Mm-hmm. It's not something that would work for everyone. But yeah, like I'd say, like realistically, I think the albums to start on from this band would be this one, yeah. and possibly the final album, Serpents and the Sphere. Serpents and the Sphere is very. Um, tight as well I definitely recommend uh, checking that one out I think all the full length albums are excellent and mm. are really worth getting into but this is probably my favourite and it may be because it was one of the earliest ones I heard and really got into um, but the Aglock throughout their career have had sort of lots of symbolism and interesting ideas about nature and um, mm. literature as well because Don Anderson is a um, professor of literature somewhere in America it should be great to have him as a lecturer but uh, they have a lot of this stuff like Faustian Echoes and Tales of Faust and stuff like oh, that yeah, yeah. loads of this stuff comes in and they're quite um, well they were quite a unique writing partnership so um, Don and Jason are, are atheists and sort of uh, sort of nihilistic and philosophical people who don't say challenge the meaning of life versus John who is a pantheist believes that sort of the world is a god sort of pagan stuff has loads of things in his house that symbolize all of that and yet together they manage to build this thing which is neither one nor the other yeah meets somewhere in the middle and creates this really nice symbolism which took like sort of deals with all these worries but never sort of pushes it to either side it's more an equal partnership when they've spoken about how they write albums with this in mind yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Like, um, a quote I wanted to get in, it's kind of irrelevant, but I just really like this oh, Don yeah. Anderson quote, was um, him being asked about music and saying that he doesn't dislike any music, he just deems any music he hasn't got into as he just hasn't learned to like it yet. And I think that's really apparent on this album, because you've got so many influences being thrown yeah. in here, like yeah. that wide spectrum of folk and post-rock mixing with definitely a love of extreme music, and actually you'll see that on the next album, which is probably the worst start point of that because it's by far one. the heaviest. Yeah. Like, like they utilize Aesop Decker's more extreme speed mm. as a drummer, mm. which I don't imagine Chris has to the same extent. Talking mm. of drums, the one thing I do have in my notes I want to mention about this, and it's the main failing of this album production-wise. For a uh, for a black metal album, it's got a good bass sound, yeah, uh, yeah. really lovely guitar sound, and the vocals sit nicely in the mix. The drums are way too loud on this album. Yeah, yeah. They are, so, and the snare sound is abysmal. <laughs> it is a re like, like maybe just abysmal by the standard of everything else sounds great on this, but it's a really annoying, like harsh, like yeah, slight it's... ding of a. Like, <laughs> it's not quite sort of of Dark Throne or you know. Well, I was more thinking Saint Anger. Yeah, yeah, it's not quite the Saint Anger or Dark Throne, but. 
Yeah, like considering that the production on this was really beginning to get very good mm. and would go on to be so good on the next couple of albums, yeah, yeah. Uh, particularly with new drama and all of this stuff, just pulling together so tightly, you can notice that that's a little lacking. Um, but it is cool, as you mentioned, um, with the bass on this album, because the bass has been turned up quite a bit since the last couple of albums, particularly Pale Folklore, where it's very hard to hear. Um, and it really helps flesh the song out because, you know, Agalog, one of those bands who will have three or four guitar tracks running at mm. the same time in some of the songs. And now you can hear the bass as well. It has a grounding as well. And you can really feel that. And if the drums were done a little better, that would, that would really work. And you'll hear that on the later albums. But it's, it's, not, it's by no means an atrocious production. It's just a little annoying on what otherwise is an almost perfect album. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I mainly bring that up because it's the only really real gripe I've got other than <laughs> I, I think the end song like the end kind of outro is just too long doing that kind mm. of experimental noise and actually like I think with Chris's departure that kind of element of their sound does sort of uh, disappear on the subsequent two albums yeah yeah there's sort of elements of some classical music and some different instruments that get brought in on Mara of the Spirit the next album but uh yeah, they definitely sort of leave behind that really ambient stuff, which I feel was, you know, when you have so many elements coming in, sometimes some of them just won't work. Yeah, So yeah. I, f I feel that was probably a good decision on their part. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, 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 one other fun fact I had. So on the last couple of albums, there was some female vocals, and they asked Anderson about this in interviews. There's no female vocals on this album, and they don't come back on the other ones. And the reason for that is that it was Don's girlfriend who used to do those vocals, and before this album, they broke up. So there are no more female vocals, unfortunately. It's uh, kind of a sad reason <laughs> for that. Kind of sad, but there you go. Yeah, so the track we're going to play from this, and, and realistically, we could have chosen any of the five, I think, mm -hmm. but I think we went for Falling Snow because it's kind of direct and gets straight into mm -hmm. the core of what is Agalock's sound. And really shows off how great some of these guitar leads are as well.
like I kind of found and definitely much smaller than the the rest on this list and I mean really see the way they package themselves they haven't done themselves many favors in that regard this is the band Dark Space formed in 1999 and we're covering their third album Dark Space 3 released in 2008 so you can kind of see the sort of like been trying to do this the sort of journey black metal's gone on through throughout like it's kind of starting back with bands like Bathory and Venom and then up to here where a band has just taken it into a completely silly kind of experimental direction. And by it is silly, but it is still really it's good. Still very good, yeah. Dark Space are an interesting band who like had such confidence in their band name they've since named everything else they've ever done after it. So they have four albums now, all named Dark Space 1 through 4. Um, every track on the album is is called Dark 1.11, uh, 1.112. And it took me ages to work out why they've done 1.11. And it's just, I worked out like minutes ago, it's just in case they ever have an album with 10 tracks on. Oh yeah. So yeah, like if they got sense. got to track eleven it'd be one point two one. Yeah. And <laughs> um, yeah, so they're like I should probably explain their sound. Like basically they've taken the atmospheric end of black metal, like kind of the more dark throne kind of um like blazing northern sky era dark throne direction of tremolo picked fast drumming where it's all about creating an atmosphere rather than picking out exactly what's going on. And what they've done is over the top of that have layered like a layer of sci-fi sounding keyboards yeah. and just like converted the vocals where they're not, they, they don't have any printed lyrics. And honestly, I don't believe they actually have lyrics. Like mm. where they've just layered vocals over this is just insane screaming over this kind of hyper raw production, like super fast pick guitars. And then actually maybe taking a bit of an influence of putting these keyboards really mm. high in the mix mm. to, um, to like get a bit of atmosphere. Um, so, so you're like your core sound when you sort of start this off you have these sort of couple of sci-fi noises they found on the keyboard which sound fantastic mm-hmm. and then you go into this sort of barely controlled chaos which um, always sits like slightly lower in the production than I think it's going to I think it's going to be clearer and then it's not yeah, and you yeah. have these sort of spaced out I mean well you have this incredibly fast blast beat which first brings you in these sort of like hypnotic drums and really fast tremolo guitar picking that sort of sits just outside of where you can really pick out what's going on which forms this really sort of hypnotic background along with these huge sci-fi keyboard sounds and then these barely audible words and screams there's a whole bunch of samples on this album as well um, in the sort of sci-fi theme on the first song 3.11 yeah um, <laughs> there is samples from Event Horizon which is just, you know, oh that's what yeah, it's from yeah and you can barely make it out but you can just about hear it it's like classic um, science fiction film like about being trapped in space with the devil and stuff like that and then they've got samples from um, Sunshine uh, and John Carpenter's uh, Prince of Darkness, I think it is. Yeah, I spotted um, that one. <laughs> and uh, Twin Peaks as well, uh, which is a bit of an oddball amongst those other sort of horror icons. But, uh, well, I suppose Sunshine's sci-fi, not horror. But um, it's, got, yeah. it's, it's got elements of that. It's, it's got a bit of a horror ending. But it, but it really... Spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> but it fits their atmosphere so perfectly. When you listen to it, it really does feel like just being lost in the void of space. And it's like the barely controlled galactic chaos around you. It's really great atmosphere. Yeah, are they, and it seems like Dark Space have well and truly gone for this. All their artwork, it's like very stripped back, very simple. Like the album cover is just like their logo on a black background. Mm. And if you get the sleeve case for it, it's kind of like... Um, 
I guess like meant to be like joined up constellations and stuff. Yeah, like, or I like planets with orbits or something. Yeah, constellations is probably better. Yeah, I, I, possibly. I don't know, but it, like definitely everything they've done is trying to create this kind of like atmosphere of sci-fi fear, like sci-fi yeah, horror. Yeah, the, the keyboards, as Rob was saying, like they are amazingly chosen keyboard tones. So they do just a few notes, um, but like they kind of run constantly under the music, but just like. They're just like laying on a couple of notes, mm. and it it just creates this super foreboding atmosphere. Yeah. And when you let it wash over you, so the album starts as Rob was saying, like some sci-fi noise on the keyboard, then just an explosion of sound. But as you let this kind of go on for like the 10, 12 minute run times of most of the songs, you kind of get used to the chaos. Yeah. But it yeah. just makes you slightly unnerved <laughs> with like all the screaming. Like the the core of the band is um, two. Like sorry. Two guitarists who both do vocals and a bass player who does mm. vocals, and then a drum machine. Like, and the drum machine seems to have been distorted as well. Like, yeah, every, yeah. <laughs> everything in this is distorted to like the nth degree, and the guitars mostly follow this kind of super fast tremolo mm. picking, occasionally breaking away into kind of um, sort of really simplistic, like actually in a similar vein to Aglock, these sim- simplistic like four or five note, like, just memorable bits of odd melody. Yeah, there are some really cool melodies that somehow sneak into this, uh, like, on these furious drums in this guitar. Every now and then there'll be this, like, really nice but creepy melody which just fits their theme so well. And then in some of the songs, like um, Dark Space 3.13 and I think in 3.17 as mm. well, um, you get this, what is almost just like a death metal riff. Like, yeah, this just yeah. chugging riff that comes in and you sort of feel... This feels out of place and yet somehow in place because it fits the tone of what they're going for. It's not a black metal riff anymore, but it has this dark void space fear sci-fi horror f- sort of theme. And then it uh, like this riff in three point one three like develops over like four to six minutes. Mm-hmm. It slows. Some tremolo picking comes in. Some more leads come in over the top of it, and it just builds in this incredible yet really organic way. And yet all the time with this sort of like occasional. Furious drums and blast beats and stuff, which just, as you say, just makes you a little bit unnerved whilst you hear all of this. <laughs> yeah, because you can never quite pick out what's going on in the chaos. Like mm. that part you're you're mentioning actually is quite interesting because it's the first part in the album where the drums really slow and you actually mm. get quite a noticeable drum groove appearing yeah, out of the yeah. the mix rather than this just kind of wall of sound. And yeah, like I'd say it takes more of an influence from death metal, but just because yeah. it's through the filter of like black metal production and still got these like very high black metal screen vocals mm, like, mm. and like almost beyond black metal like you know um in, in now nafrak how he sometimes yeah. does those like distorted bits where he's just screaming his head off yeah like, yeah it, it feels very much like that and the sort of absence of any concrete lyrics and stuff just gives that more like it's an atmospheric sound as opposed to really well it's still vocals but it's in the place of an atmospheric sound instead of like a vocalist or a lyricist or anything yeah, like that yeah like, um, we've not gone into any diesels of the band because they seem to be making an effort to keep themselves relatively secret. So I don't think it's kind of important mm. to, to like, their kind of um, their sound or their identity. Well, they do actually play live. But, I've um, seen some photos of them live, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, yeah, like, if you open the booklet that comes with this album, it is just a black piece of card, which, when you open it, it's completely black except for a little picture. There is no information yeah. about the band whatsoever. <laughs> According yeah. to um, uh, Metal Archives, I've discovered the band are uh, Roth, I think, guitar and vocals, 
Zargle. Zargle. Zaral. Zaral. Guitar and vocals and Zorg bass and vocals. That's about all I've determined from it. It's interesting because you have these three different vocalists and it's really hard to tell. You won't be able to pick an individual one out, but I think having that just adds to the sort of um, uncanniness and Mm. sort of difficulty recognising exactly what's going on and yet still feeling that sort of texture of the sound despite that. Yeah, and like this is one of the albums where I think it really gets away with something that I've often bitched about in some like kind of more lengthy doom albums where mm-hmm. they use like you often get seen where a riff will end and you'll just get this massive feedback. Like Esoteric are really yeah, bad for doing yeah. this, where they'll do like a minute and a half of feedback on an end <laughs> of a song. This album though genuinely uses it to quite good effect mm-hmm. in some places where you'll get like a feeding out guitar over just the end of like a cymbal sound with like a bit of the keyboards going and it's a really good way to drop down between each track before chucking you back yeah, into the mayhem yeah. like, um, so, I mean this album as well um, like a lot of Doom albums is, is like 80 minutes long it's, it's almost it's, exactly it's yeah. enormous and sort of I mean I still don't feel I've spent quite enough time with this because it takes so much to absorb what's going on but having listened to it quite a few times, it's almost like a ritual experience. Like mm-hmm. you really have to take the time to listen to this album. But it's really rewarding once you settle into what's actually going on, picking up all the stuff that's going on. How, like we were saying with the sort of death metal riff, as it slowly develops and adds all these leads in, uh, it gets this sort of great final product and some awesome atmosphere out of this. And um, the one thing I was going to ask is how does this compare to other Dark Space albums? Because this is the only one I've listened to. So, um, I've listened to the first one as well. I've heard, I haven't heard the whole way through the, the new one. Mm. Basically, they seem to be just building on the same template. Mm. Like, um, I don't know if you know the band Portal, who pretty much, yeah, like, yeah. who again go for a really dark atmosphere where it just seems they've come up with this idea from their inception of what they want to sound yeah, like yeah. and they're just getting gradually better and better and at doing it. it. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and um, like, the fourth album, I'm quite excited for. I should really mm. actually get a copy, but it's just, these, these are an album you have to make time for. These are like 80 minute long albums that, it only work if you listen to the whole thing as one. Like yeah, you need yeah. to sit there and like just get into the weird headspace they're trying yeah. to create. And it takes you almost as long as sort of like the sci-fi films that they're sort of taking the atmosphere from this sci-fi horror. But mm. in that sense, like it stands as a really awesome art piece because it gives you that sort of feeling, but from an album as opposed to a film, which I think is like really incredible to get that from particularly such a long album as well to be able to sit there and listen to the whole thing and still come away feeling like the whole thing sort of deserved its runtime yeah yeah and 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 with no distractions there aren't really any solos there's there's Mm. no lyrics whatsoever to focus on you're not going to pick out bits of good drumming (laughs) because the the drums have been purposely disguised like you're not going to like other than say in dark 3.14 which is the kind of instrumental track of the album is the only part where you get some really kind of more impressive lead work. But yeah, even that's yeah. kept... You, they, they're a band you always give the impression they could probably play a hell of a lot more technically if they actually mm-hmm. wanted to, but it's just not what they're going for. I mean, we've got an interest... Like, we're going to play a song of this album because that's that's how we do this, but it's probably not the best way to experience it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we're going to end this set with um, the 12-minute Dark 3.13... If you're not digging it, there's going to be nothing afterwards. It just it will go on for quite some time. It's by far the longest set, song we've played on this, and 
probably in a similar way to what we haven't covered earlier. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> avoid playing a lot of like <laughs> twelve minute long mm. songs. Um, yeah. So I, I, has that pretty much covered everything for yeah, Dark Space? I think that's everything we have to say. We should probably plug all of our things. Yeah, yeah. To do that. Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, go to the Facebook page. Like we're trying to post on that relatively regularly. Um, it's just Phil's Breakfast Metal, all one word. Um, please rate and review us on iTunes. It'd be great to get enough ratings on there that we actually, you know, show up with a star score at the. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, maybe good. <laughs> we'll see how it goes. <laughs> yeah, or, or if you want to get get in touch just via email, Phil's Breakfast Metal at gmail.com. We've also got a Twitter account, but I don't really use that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so the. Yeah. The final track we're going to play for you, Dark 3.13. Next episode, we'll be back with some out of the world. That's all weird. Yeah. <laughs>